It's Angela Yee, and I'm telling you right now that the Alive Podcast Network app is the best directory of podcasts created for us by us. From relationships to making money moves, there's a show that'll captivate every listener. And for my fellow Black creatives, this is a call to action to take your brand and monetization to the next level. It's for the culture. Join the movement and sign up today. You can thank me later. Download the Alive Podcast app from your app store today. Wake up. If Pay Me in Equity was a person, it would look like Leisha Bell. The queen of deal flow and dishing venture dollars is known in part for the brains behind the $535 million PayPal fund that was generously distributed to the black and brown owned businesses subsequent to the George Floyd hearing. Her extensive background as a capital allocator, aka Tech Money Spinderella, includes Pipeline Angel, BLXVC, Black Girl Ventures, Pharrell's Black Ambition Fund, and Women of Color Capital Collective. And that's just a snippet of what she brings to her current role as a change maker for PayPal Ventures. Leisha Bell is the co-founder of BLXVC, an angel syndicate of moms mobilizing money for black and brown women entrepreneurs. She is the prior deal flow lead for Pipeline Angels, a network of women and femmes. And currently, she leads the Economic Opportunity Fund at PayPal Ventures. For more details, go to www.leishabell.com. so excited to chat with Leisha today and share with you more about my journey to becoming the founder and GP of Symphonic Capital. Fun fact, I'm a proud cat mom of Coco. Excited to dig in. Hello, and welcome to Sisters with Ventures, the podcast where we amplify black and brown women who are angel investors. On this show, we will explore what is angel investing, how to become one, and why would you want to be one? We will discuss how the most marginalized women persevered to the very top of the investing spectrum. Whether you're making money moves or barely making money, listen up. I'm your host, Lee Chabelle, co-founder of BLXVC, an angel syndicate run by Black and Latinx women who are on a mission to represent ourselves and claim our seats on cap tables. Stay tuned. Welcome to another episode of Sisters with Ventures. I'm so delighted today to have a very special guest, Cindy Thomas. Welcome to the show. So we go way back. You know, I would venture to say we ventured and adventure around the same time in, in different ways. But Sydney is a, a fellow Haas alum. So go Bears. Uh, go Bears. That's where we met. And when I started Pipeline Angels, you were like our VC in residence, right? Yep. So you were there to help guide us and shepherd us, these newbie angels along the path. <laughs> <laughs> you all knew what you were doing, but it was fun to Oh my gosh. 
Yeah, I think you had just started working at Precursor at the time, and it was a very beautiful journey. And to see how, you know, that was six or seven years ago, and how we've all progressed in venture since then has been great to, to see your growth. I'm really excited to have you on the call today. And you've also been around Oaktown. So I want to give Oakland some love, you know, for the people in the town doing it. So good to have you. So why don't you tell us, like, what's your origin story? Where are you from? Where are your people mm-hmm. from? Yes. So I'm originally from San Diego, born and raised. So Cali girl through and through. And my mom is from West Virginia. She is one of 12. I have 30 some odd cousins. That is home for me too. And another home for me is Denver. That's where my dad's from. And so that's where we spend a lot of our time growing up as well. So the cool thing is that having such this cross section of people gave me exposure to some really interesting and challenging parts of America from a very young age. And so I had questions. <laughs> You're a very curious questions. one. I can mm-hmm. see you right now. <laughs> right? I was like, why is this this way? What's going on over there? Why is this, you know, do I get this and they don't get that? And right. so started my quest to figure out how to make this world better from a really young age, just like most kids. I think most kids are trying to figure out Mm. how do they, where do they fit? What do they want to do? And so grateful. Yeah. Well, I think it's always interesting where you notice something is different or not equitable. And then you kind of build in this muscle of advocacy. And, And as I say, you can't be a black woman in venture without being an advocate. And advocating for voices, you know, and this, in your case, advocating for investment, you know, and like how that starts and and where that starts is like always so interesting to me. So you um, became a venture capitalist. Congratulations. Uh, How did you get there? How did you know this was a path you wanted to do? How are you exposed to the industry? Tell me the steps. Yeah. I mean, so much of it was trial and error. I've had a number of careers before I got here, and I was exposed to it actually through our alma mater at Berkeley. I got Mm. there and was wondering what actually did I want to do. I think I was coming from the public sector with very little background and understanding of what the opportunity set was available to me on the private sector side. So I spent a lot of time in companies, basically interning in San Francisco across startups and large companies and got exposed to VC through that work and was just blown away by the opportunity that VCs had to invest in this entire portfolio of companies that would impact the world in a really meaningful way. So to me, VC was an opportunity actually from day one, I saw it as an opportunity opportunity for me to have a significant impact on the world. I, you know, this was 2015, 2016. Berkeley hadn't yet built out much of its connected tissue to the VC ecosystem. And Mm -hmm. so they didn't have a lot of to introduce me to. And so career services actually told me to try and find some folks on LinkedIn. And so I did. I went on to LinkedIn (laughs) 
LinkedIn Premium, cold emailed a whole bunch of folks, and got some intros, and found my way in. I basically, with my previous job, sat down with my old boss and was, I don't really know what you need me to do, but whatever it is, I'm down. I can, I just want to be here to learn. I have so much yeah. that I want to do in this industry and I just need a foot in the door. And so I started, yeah. you know, just doing everything, social media, accounting, back office, and transitioned into front office over my career there and spun out to launch my own fund. That's great. That's great. So let's talk about your first career in VC, what you were focusing on. You talked about you did various hats and various things and like what led or inspired you to take that bold step of going out on your own? Yeah. Somebody actually asked me today what I'm most proud of and it's that. I think mm-hmm. that so many folks get very rightly so, I think, really blinded by the money of actually being in. Once you get into VC, it's already so hard to get in that once right. you're in at any seat, you want to hold that seat warm as long as possible because <laughs> no, you might not have another seat if you leave it. And I decided to leave that seat and create my own seat. And it's been a journey, a privilege, a blessing, completely overwhelming experience all into one. And I had very strong conviction of what needed to exist. I think that we've seen a proliferation of pre-seed funds exist over the last seven years, which I'm really excited about being on the vanguard of. And we've seen seed funds get larger and larger and larger. And so we actually have this category of companies who, after they've raised their pre-seed fund, have no one to turn to, to raise their two to $3 million seed round because the seed funds are so large, they need to invest in a five, 10, 15, $20 million round. The people who are usually stuck in that gap are people who don't have the credibility, however you want to define that word, to jump into those larger rounds which largely tend to be people of color, women, particularly women of color. And so I decided to build a fund that's investing at pre-seed, but reserving the majority of its capital to double down and build out these companies once they graduate into seed and give them that opportunity to really create that track record of a company to get to product market fit, to get to significant traction, to actually build that product and have that consumer base. So that when they go to Series A, it's a completely no-brainer. Of course, they're going to win. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you talked about it because there is a big hurdle getting from C to Series A. Especially the funding ecosystem is very different at Series A, right? You start getting institutionals involved and, you know, it's kind of like the big hurdle. (laughs) That's hard to clear from C to Series A. So I love that you focus on that. Why don't you tell us about... Symphonic, that's that's a new name, right? Yes. Tell us about it. Tell us about your investment thesis and what you're excited about. Yeah. So, yes, we recently rebranded as Symphonic and officially launched. I'm so excited. So much of the rationale behind the rebrand was that we had a real opportunity, I think, to use the name to 
quickly and succinctly share with the world what we were building. And when I think of a symphony, I think of a collection of the best players who are brought together to create something powerful. That's the thesis. We believe that it's every company is a sum of its parts and that when you have the best parts together, Mm -hmm. you make the best company. And we take that seriously from a firm building culture as well. What I'm building also is a company. I'm building symphonic capital, which means I need to have the best players in each seat to create something powerful. And you might have seen on my LinkedIn that I have, you know, cheekily named myself the conductor. And when I shared that, I got an amazing quote back someone shared with me, which is that a conductor's job is actually to stay silent. It's not to make a sound. It's to make everyone else who they are conducting the most powerful version of themselves. And that's my job. It's to help these founders become the most powerful version of themselves. My co-investors become the most powerful versions of themselves. My, you know, colleagues, the most powerful version of themselves. That's the job. Well, Harriet Tubman was a conductor. So I think you're in a great company. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I didn't know that. I love that. Yes. So. Yes, she's like the conductor of the railroad. So, you know, I love it. To me, I already took out all the meanings of this and I love how it plays out, literally plays. So tell us about your fun focus. So you might have guessed from sharing more about my background and, you know, having that connected tissue to West Virginia and also Denver. My dad is also a retired kidney doctor. And so I grew up a lot around wealth and health, and so particularly mm-hmm. access gaps pertaining to both of those areas. And I've been fascinated with it ever since. And so my track record at my previous fund, those are the deals I gravitated to. And I realized that they also, when you focus on these companies and particularly on underserved areas, they have the opportunity to do really well because most VCs don't know about these communities. And so they actually don't know where the gaps are. So I'm really leveraging that to really take advantage of this space that I think other VCs are ignoring to, I think, you know, return the fund multiple times over. That's great. That's great. And I think, you know, in VC, we talk about your superpowers, right? And it's kind of like who you know, what you know, in our case, lived experience is really important in being able to really source those great deals by these problems that are just not getting fuel to be fixed <laughs> and saying we need to fix them and we prioritize them by putting capital towards that. So that's great. And, you know, I'm like a fintech baby too. So I love things all around financial inclusion and making that more accessible as well, right? Because you really can't have wealth without good health and good health that is hard to get without wealth. You know, like it's, it's, it's a, that relationship is pretty important. Um, so I love that you focus on that. So let's talk about some things that irritate you as a, are you a solo GP? I, I am. Ask, a solo black female GP. So I know in our prep call, it was like that annoying question of what's your fun size? I want to get you worked up. 
Why is that like an annoying question? <laughs> it's such a it's such a good question. I thank you for asking this because to me, so many of the questions that I get asked as a solo black woman GP are completely different questions than I would get asked as a solo white guy GP. And fun size is one of those questions. I know many white guys who have raised two, three, four, five funds. Nobody knows what their AUM is. They don't Mm. talk about it. They don't publicize it. Nobody seems to ask them about it. And they're just operating under the radar in a way that when you are one of the very few Black women in particular in this industry, you don't get access to. And so you're constantly put on display, which sometimes is useful and sometimes is just not and is actually just, I think, really overwhelming. Um, Yeah. I think that for... We'll just say the white guys, it's not a qualifying factor. But if you're black, it's a qualifying factor, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's the gatekeeping that is VC because it's seen as an indic as air quotes indicator, right? And it is unfairly disproportionate. If if you are presumed to already have access to wealth and have wealth, nobody cares. Right. 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 <laughs> you have it already. They're just like, oh, yeah, okay, I don't even need to know your fund size because it's probably really large versus with everyone else. Yeah, right. Do you think there is a correlation, because this is just, you know, hearing all the sides of the story between the AUM and being a good steward of the finances? Oh, wow. Oh, I know. That's a hard one. That's a hard one. I think you can be an amazing steward of a dollar and I think you can be a terrible steward of a dollar. And I think the same is true of a hundred million dollars. And what matters actually is, do you know what you're doing? And I think one of the things that a lot of folks don't ask me that I wish they would ask me more Mm -hmm. is how did your fund operating experience prepare you to be a fund manager? Because when folks actually start talking about what actually life is like as a fund manager, it's 30, 40, 50% ops. And mm. if you don't actually know how to run a firm in that way, because you're always so focused on deals, because that's like the cool thing to do is just deals. You actually right. have no idea how to run a fund. Right. So I will share as an operator in a major fund that, you know, the investors, I'm like, they spend three months and then we take the next seven to 10 years, like managing the deal and the founder and that, like, you know, like <laughs> there's a lot of work that comes after the deal, right? And that work is valuable and really important and meaningful to the portfolio health. So shout out to all the ops people who keep the deals alive post deal. So tell me about have you noticed a big difference between your new fund and how you're seen with or without that brand as a solo GP? Do you have more liberties, less liberties? How is it in that transition? 
Dang, you're coming in with the hot, the hot stuff. <laughs> I feel like I should be eating. What is that one like? The hot wings. <laughs> oh shit! Oh shit! Um, <laughs> I think that one of the things that I underestimated when launching my own fund was how little people knew me. I mm. thought that they already knew me. I thought that you know I'd mm. been. I, I talk a lot. I'd been on a lot of podcasts. I'd done a lot of writing. I had been very, I think, purposeful with building a brand for myself. Yeah. And I was surprised by when I was building something on my own, the shift in like basically feeling like I had to start from scratch some of those things that I had been doing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because I'd always been, you know, a bit of talking on behalf of an institution, like some, but not my institution. It was somebody else's institution. And then right. when it's my own, that has a very unique set of perspectives. I was starting from scratch because I had to actually share out explicitly what I was doing. It wasn't just what the previous institution was doing. And so right. it's been really amazing to have a community of people around me who have been supportive in helping me build that. Jennifer Kim on our team is a venture partner in marketing, and she's just amazing in helping me distill what we're building Mm -hmm. and so that I can communicate it. But that's a skill that I needed to learn. Right. Right. Yeah. That's great because I think there's a lot of fear. (laughs) And then, you know, these GPs, I'm like, you guys can't do it all. Like you realize, okay, well, I'm not good at marketing or I'm not, you know, all these things, right? <laughs> it's like, do I learn? Do I have some augment from the team? You know, how do I kind of get that skill set? Because it's a GP, you have to wear so many hats, you know? Oh my gosh. I remember at the end of December, bringing together my venture partners and outlining all the things that I needed to learn for us to be successful within the next quarter. And I was like, these are too many things. (laughs) But I actually learned all of these things. And I think back to why I say I'm just so proud of myself for doing this and proud of anyone who does this is that you are on this very aggressive learning journey and the timeline is tight. And so I think it's a really beautiful opportunity for you to actually see what you're made of. Yes. See what you're made of. That's a great segue to our our final question, because now we see what you're made of. Okay. And it's a lot. What would you tell your younger self? Aww. I would tell her that she should listen to her body more. I think mm. that oftentimes my body has told me everything I needed to know, and I've just pushed past it to do the thing that my head thinks I need to do. And I think when you listen to your body, you actually do the thing that you need to do every time. Yeah. Trusting. Well, you know, your body is doing all kinds of weird things. You're growing up. (laughs) It's scary. It's scary. That's so true. (laughs) Right. Start trusting it after like, you know, 18. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That sounds great. Oh, my gosh. So how do our listeners get in touch with you if they want to support your fun, follow you? Yes. 
Well, I would love to hear from all of you. My email is sydney, S-Y-D-N-E-Y, at symphonic, S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-I-C, dot V-C. And you can also check us out on our website, which is symphonic.vc. That's perfect. Well, this has been a lovely conversation with you. It's so great to see your growth and your progress and taking bold, courageous steps in this VC world and being the change you want to see and investing in the change you want to see. Um, Trailblazer, waymaker, conductor. I love it. Keep doing what you're doing, Sydney. It's been an honor to have you on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So, so, so grateful for the work you're doing too. Thank you. No problem. All right. We'll see you next time. It's the Super Ventures. Thanks, everyone. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to the show. Please subscribe, tell a friend, check us out, let the world know. You can find out more information about this podcast at LeeChabelle.com. And remember, be an angel, invest. Invest.